Jesus preached and taught his disciples, uh, words that are applicable uh, to us today and has been throughout church history, as many have valued and seen great value in Jesus' words uh, in these chapters here in Matthew. Today we're going to be thinking about the last two of the Beatitudes contained in verses 9 to 12. The last two verses, 11 and 12, are probably best seen as an outworking of the last Beatitude, which collectively speaks of the persecution that Christians can face, as well as serving as something of a transition into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, a speech that goes right through to chapter, the end of chapter 7 in Matthew's Gospel. And so as we consider the last two Beatitudes here, by way of reminder, if we take these Beatitudes as a whole, you could say that they come to us as a bit of a grand test. Now, you and I have all had various tests in life. Maybe it's your driving test, exams and tests in your schooling, or maybe a difficult situation that you've been through that you'd say that's kind of tested you, tested your mantle. But the test before us that these Beatitudes come and strike us with is the most important test anyone can face. Testing our heart with the question, are you a Christian? Not just on paper, not just like a badge that you might wear or a bumper sticker that you might put on your car but a genuine Christian, a born-again Christian, one who has been marked out for salvation, having the indwelt Holy Spirit, a Christian from the heart, who has been given a new heart, a new desire to live for God, to please and honor Him, and to find its supreme joy in doing so. In this way, these Beatitudes have been helping us define what the Christian really is, what kind of person they are fundamentally, in their character, demonstrated in how they approach certain situations, and indeed how they approach their whole life. When circumstances come at them, when life comes at them, life struggles, life's temptations to walk contrary to God, how do they react? What comes out of their character when all these things bump into them? But as we've been searching and exploring these Beatitudes, we've seen also that there's a bit of a progression in them. Taking a bird's eye view, there is a clear progression. Uh, the first few Beatitudes focus more so on our great need that human beings have to recognize their sin before a holy God. To see their great depravity, their lack, their spiritual poverty to mourn over their sin and to come to the feet of Jesus to find sweet and pleasant forgiveness, renewal and restoration. And so as these Beatitudes have progressed, we've seen their focus progress a bit more as well, as it sort of focuses on some of the outworking of that spiritual transformation, of that inner wondrous work of salvation. A few weeks ago, we explored and considered what does it mean to be merciful and the pure in heart? And so today we consider the peacemaker and the persecuted. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. What comes to your mind when you think of peace and maybe that of the peacemaker? Well, the word peace is a word that can spark a whole range of thoughts and ideas in our culture. Maybe you might immediately think of placing cucumber pieces on your eyelids, rubbing a bit of facial cream and kick back for a nice, peaceful, relaxing massage. Or maybe you think of longing for that peaceful corner in the world where you can kick back and not have a worry in the world, where the sun is shining like it is today and all is well. Uh, there's a Dr. Seuss book that came to my mind as I was thinking about this. I wonder if you know it. It's called I Had Trouble in Getting to Solasalu. Does anyone know that book? It's just me. Uh, Solasalu is supposedly this blissful city where no troubles exist, at least very few. So that utopian city of Solasalu turned out to not actually be accessible. And the main character faces not only uh, trouble after trouble in trying to get there. The other obvious one uh, on the world stage when we think about peace is that of world peace, where conflict and war abounds. Or for many, peace can refer to that inner peace. Peace being free from negative feelings or anxiety. A soul that is truly at peace with itself and the world around. When you, we think of the peacemaker, perhaps what comes to mind is that of a mediator, someone who mediates between parties, maybe a negotiator who works behind the scenes to help negotiate uh, the outcome of a war, or maybe the marriage counsellor who helps relationships be restored, or someone who is seeking to build a bridge with a friend when that relationship has been broken, and to preempt a little bit of uh, what I'll say a little bit more about this beatitude, those things are certainly included in that of the peacemaker, that work of reconciliation. Whatever you think of the voice, uh, as we've just prayed for earlier, that too is seeking some sort of reconciliation between peoples or cultures. When we consider what biblical peace is about, and what Jesus means here about being a peacemaker, and what that characteristic ought to be like in the Christian, it is important for us to try and discern what he is getting at. What does he mean by that? And so perhaps it's helpful for us to first describe what it isn't. Jesus doesn't mean here people who are just kind of peaceful in a general sense of the word kind of speaking of natural disposition, perhaps. Uh, I've met pe many people of, uh, some people of other faiths, Muslims and Hindus, who were some of the most peaceful in character I've ever met. Quiet, relaxed, easy to talk to. Easy to talk to about even the Christian faith, uh, more so than many other atheistic people I've met in the West. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. Nor does Jesus mean being an appeaser, what you might call fake peace, smoothing over difficulties without actually dealing with the underlying issues. 
putting a Band-Aid on when a situation calls for open surgery. Someone who simply seeks to keep things happy in a superficial sense, out of fear perhaps of backlash or being a people pleaser, not willing to call out sin. Nor does being a peacemaker mean being a meddler, a busybody who simply likes to get involved in a dispute because they like to know the gossip. To such a person, Proverbs 26, 17 provides wise advice. Where it says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. What happens when you grab a, dog, a strange dog by its ears? It gets you. Nor does being a peacemaker mean having a Messiah complex. Proudly entering a situation thinking that you have all the answers. That you can fix the problem and save the day. Yes, as Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ. We represent Christ. But we are not the Messiah. We can only point others to him. And so with those clarifications in mind, put positively, what is the peacemaker? Well, for one, it is being active rather than passive in seeking peace and reconciliation between people. Not in a meddling way, and yet in as far as we can and can appropriately do so in a godly manner, promote peace with others. Both in your own relationships with others, but also where possible, helping guide others to peaceable relationships with those around them. I think Paul said in Romans 12 verse 18 so, so well when he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In a world that is full of hate towards others, of broken relationships, of verbal poisonous darts hurled at others, there is certainly a great need for peaceful relationships. And the genuine Christian ought to excel at this, to stand out, to strive for it. As you reflect on your own life and the relationships that you have, Christian, what brave steps of being a peacemaker do you need to take? Who in your life do you need to make peace with? So far as it depends on you, what step towards peace do you need to make? We think about the Beatitudes and what's led up to this, this, this Beatitude today. It calls for the Christian to be poor in spirit, mourning over sin, being meek, looking to pursue God's righteousness, to be merciful and pure. A Christian then who displays these characteristics will be well placed to be the peacemaker. Truly being a peacemaker is also something that is costly. It costs us something, doesn't it? To face the difficult conversations. To deal with the real issues. And not simply appease. Whether it's swallowing our own pride or self-interest. Or appropriately choosing to get involved in something that might mean you get bitten in return. 
Some of you here this morning know exactly what this means. And you still carry the scars today of those past conflicts. That's you today. Come to your Savior, will you? He sees you. He knows what you felt. He knows what you went through. What you still feel, the hurt. Press into him, the great healer of our soul. Ultimately, being a peacemaker is offering the ultimate and greatest peace, true peace, by offering the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, whereby pointing others to Jesus. Jesus through whom people can experience reconciliation where there has been the most terrible of relationship breakdowns. That is between God and us and finding true reconciliation with God. Such a person, such a peacemaker, God calls his child someone who is part of his eternal kingdom. The last beatitude consists of those who are persecuted. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this beatitude, being persecuted is not a character trait as such, as it is a natural result of what has come before it. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and all the other Beatitudes, it all leads up to and results in this last Beatitude. It leads to persecution. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, John Stott makes a helpful observation here. He says, It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution. From the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. Yet however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. Furthermore, uh, regarding what leads to persecution and what helps define it, uh, John Stott says this, he says, Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Now, of course, more can be said about that. But we know we live as Christians in a fallen world and there are spiritual enemies at play and Satan is against the church. That is all true. But what John Stott says here I think is helpful and insightful. The Christian character then naturally leads to persecution because they, at a fundamental level, have values and characteristics that are out of step with the world around them. Notice with me that Jesus does not merely say, blessed are the persecuted, period. The Christian is not the only religion to receive persecution. The persecution against the Turkic, uh, I can't say, but Uyghur Muslim people uh, by the Chinese government in China has been well documented these last few years, along with many Christians in that country. Likewise, in India, the Hindu government is persecuting numerous minority groups, including Christians 
Muslims and Sikhs. But it is those who are persecuted for following Christ who receives heaven's applause. God's smile upon them. Those persecuted for righteousness sake. Those who are reviled and spoken evil of on account of Jesus himself. Being a Christian then attracts persecution by way of standing out because of your commitment to Christ. Now, in some places, that may escalate to violence, and indeed it does in the world today. Or, as verse 11 says, it may be evil words spoken against you, those reviling you, or maybe some other form of imprisonment. As, as Christians, as we consider this difficult topic, on the one hand, this does not mean that Christians should zealously pursue persecution in the world. Persecution in and of itself is not a good thing. Rather, perhaps we should see it as a byproduct, an outworking of being who we are, or at least who we should be in the world. On the other hand, nor does it mean we ought to avoid it necessarily if it comes our way for us because we're Christian. But we ought not compromise what we believe to avoid it, as revealed in the Scriptures. Furthermore, the Christian ought to strive not to receive persecution unnecessarily, needlessly breaking civil laws that are not directly opposed to God's law. 1 Peter 4 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of God and of God of a spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. As our Western world pulls more away from its Christian foundation, we ought not be surprised if persecution comes, as the gap between different value systems grow ever wider and more obvious. And we've seen some of this to some extent already. Whether it is the Andrew Thorburn and the whole Essendon saga, which I guess revealed um, the disparity between the Christian worldview and the current society, uh, social view on issues of things like sexuality and how it may, being a Christian may affect your job prospects. Or likewise, the Defence Force I read recently uh, ordered some of their cadets to wear purple and wear it purple day to promote and show allegiance to LGBT agendas. A Christian may be faced today with some tough questions and tough situations where they have to stand up for their values. It's conceivable that, that if things continue in the current way they are, Christians may need to take, be faced with some tougher questions. And so if that day comes, are you ready to stand firm? Will you be surprised by it? Have you counted the cost? In such circumstances, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice? Be glad? Are you kidding? How can someone be happy in such circumstances? Well, Jesus says, Because your reward in heaven is great. You have something precious 
a treasure beyond what this world can offer. Something that no persecution can take away from you. As Lloyd-Jones said, he said, The Christian is a man who should always be thinking of the end. The Christian needs to have such a great and clear view of the eternal life to come and what we have in Jesus that it overshadows and dominates their present view of this world and this life. Jesus is not saying that we should ignore the difficulties in front of us, nor should we in any way devalue the life that he has given us here and now. Rather, he's simply pointing out the obvious, that one day for the Christian, all present difficulties will pass. They are not forever. His words here then actually sustain us when difficulties arise because of our faith. How? Because these words help us see reality correctly. To see things from God's perspective and not from our own or from a worldly perspective. How then can you and I live this out? How can you and I excel in And become peacemakers. Where do you and I find strength to stand firm in God's truth? Surely strength does not come in ourselves. In our own resources and abilities. Christian, do not these beatitudes, their great calling, undo you today. I pity the person who reads them and thinks, oh yeah, I can do this. This is easy enough. I've got it what it takes to, uh, to live out these difficult, this difficult calling. I shall simply take them and apply them to my life and be done with it. If that's what you're thinking today, that a simple control C and then a control P, copy, paste will do, you're failing to see. You have eyes but do not see. You have ears but do not hear. A heart that remains in unbelief, lost in your sin without Jesus. For it is only in Christ that these spiritual qualities come to us and become ours. And it's in Christ who gives us the ability to then live them out. It is only through looking to the one who is the ultimate peacemaker As scripture says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who became our peacemaker through being persecuted himself. For though he was innocent and free from sin, he was condemned to death and made to be sin in our place. He became our perfect substitute, suffering not just at the hands of men, but suffering the very wrath of God. You could say that on the cross, it was Jesus who got bitten, getting involved in a sense in a problem that was not his own. For he wasn't a sinner, and yet he came to deal with the messiness and the ugliness of our problem, of our sin. And so I ask you this morning, have you truly forsaken your own self-reliance, your own self-righteousness? The call of the gospel is to repent and believe. We cannot be saved by our own ability. That is an offensive message. It says that you and I don't 
have what it takes in and of ourselves to please God, to walk in His way. But you must become poor in spirit to acknowledge the stench of your sin towards God, to recognize your lowly state and your need. And it is to wholly trust and believe in Jesus for salvation and spiritual life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the Christian hope. That is the treasure in, in heaven that we have. A life beyond this life, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Do you have this life? Will you turn to Jesus? And that is the same hope that spurs every Christian to walk with him and for him. Christian, do you, do you see your need to be a peacemaker in a world and amongst a people who are lost without hope of the gospel, in the broken relationships that you've witnessed and perhaps been involved in? When you think about the hard calling to stand firm in our faith, do you feel fickle and wondering how you might stand firm when the call is difficult and may bring uh, persecution and backlash? That is a good place to be, for you are perfectly placed to run to Jesus and gain help from on high to live out your calling. And to hear it said of you, for you shall be called sons of God, and yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and also the following, uh, the previous weeks where we've been able to consider your Beatitudes that you spoke all those long years ago for your church and for your people. Father, we thank you that in them you can reveal to us not only our need, graciously show our need before you, our need for forgiveness, but also show how, as Christians, what it means to be a Christian and what you call us to. And indeed, Father, we consider that calling today and we recognize how difficult it is to be a peacemaker and to even suffer for your sake. And yet, Father, you call us to do so to, in a way that is to rejoice. Rejoice knowing that it means we're on the right path. The Father, living for you is so more valuable than anything in this world. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would indeed strengthen us to do that as your people. I pray that we wouldn't compromise in our Christian beliefs, even if that's difficult to do sometimes. And Father, I pray that in relationships that are broken, that you'd help us to uh, be effective peacemakers in our disposition, in the character that you've given us, in how we respond in different situations, that people will see that there is something different about us. Not that we boast that we're accomplishing that ourselves, but that is your work in us. And Father, I pray that part of that, we would go out into the world 
as people who share the gospel. This amazing message of reconciliation between God and sinful people, only possible through Jesus. And Father, as we come to the supper now and consider that uh, special thing that you did for us and how you saved us, Father, I pray that our hearts might sing for joy. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I invite you to respond in song as, and as, also as we prepare to partake of the supper, we'll sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. good to know that God hears our praises even when technology doesn't work properly.